I'm Jay Pitts, a real estate broker, agent, leader, and investor. For the last decade, I've navigated the craziest of real estate markets this country has ever seen, selling over 2,000 homes, moving in and out of markets, always ahead of the curve. And now I'm bringing that perspective to you. This is your resource, and Real Talk About Real Estate starts right now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Resource Real Talk about Louisville Real Estate. I'm Gabe Pruitt, and today I'm joined by a guest host, Luke Andrews. What's up, everybody? I think, Luke, this is your first time on Resource, guest or host. You are 100% correct. <laughs> but uh, today, Jay was not feeling too well, so Luke was kind enough to step in. Luke, I appreciate it. And our guest today is Tyler Chesser, the president and founder of the Chesser Companies, a real estate investor, a broker, owner of commercial real estate practice. Uh, Tyler, thanks for being here. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, and I really appreciate you having me on. And hopefully Jay feels better, man. He was uh, yeah. calling me. He's got some issues today, <laughs> but it's great, great to be with both of you guys and everybody who's watching and listening. Yeah, for sure. So Tyler, why don't you give us just a, a little brief intro to kind of who you are and what your world of real estate looks like? Sure. Yeah. And it's funny because we were having a quick chat before we went live here. And it's like, well, you know, I try to be dynamic. I, I do a lot of different things. And you know, we do commercial real estate brokerage within my company. We also do real estate investment. In fact, we focus on multifamily apartment complexes uh, for investment. Uh, we do a lot of that on the brokerage side as well. We also broker, you know, retail properties, office deals, um, industrial, land, you name it, sort of across the board there. We're, we're very active in Kentucky and Indiana, and we work with investors all over the country as well as internationally. In fact, we closed a deal last week with a group out of China as well as Singapore. So oh, we're, wow. we're very active and uh, we do that. And, and also I, I host a podcast called Elevate, uh, Elevate Podcast, which is about personal development and real estate investment. And, um, you know, because I'm super passionate about personal development, of course, as well as real estate. And real estate for me is like a practical solution towards getting what you want in your life. Yeah. And the only way I've been able to be successful in real estate is just by developing my own skills, my own talents, and, you know, developing my network and all these different things. So that's what we talk about on Elevate and also coach real estate investors um, all over the country as well. So, so yeah, like you said, a little things. bit of everything. Yeah, a lot of, oh. lot of different things. Yep. Well, yeah, we'll definitely drop a link to uh, Elevate in the notes right after we wrap up today so you guys can find it. Uh, but Luke, you'll agree, we've talked a lot on this show about you know, personal residential real estate investing and commercial investing is kind of a new angle for us. Absolutely, Gabe. And, you know, Tyler, I'll probably just kick it off if you just want to talk a little bit. You know, I, I think our audience will be interested in the, the multifamily piece of it. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit, too, about the, about the commercial space. But I think for our, our specific audience, the, the multifamily is, is huge right now. That's a question that everybody's got. Sure. So um, I think one of the big things, uh, you know, speaking of the real estate investors who are listening, you know, most people who, you know, invest in real estate, for the most part, will start at single family homes. You know, they, they get their, they cut their teeth there and kind of learn their systems and their processes and learn the ins and outs and make their mistakes. You know, I mean, we all made our mistakes yeah. and I continue to do so every day as an investor, as a broker or anything. I mean, I, I make mistakes in everything I do. So um, I want that to be clear and that it's not a problem. You know, you learn and you grow, but but you, you kind of, you know, a lot of people do start in single family space. And one thing that I've learned is that it can be very challenging to scale that exponentially um, to manage a large portfolio of single family homes can be challenging. Um, just due to the logistics of what that entails. And so people then, the natural progression is to, to get into multifamily. And so what we've seen is that, 
you know, people, you know, will start to look for, you know, their duplexes or fourplexes to kind of cut their teeth there. And, you know, it's all about scale. The name of the game in multifamily is about scale, but it becomes challenging to do so without your proper team, without your proper experience. And so it just depends. I mean, I'm happy to go down any angle you guys want to go, um, but that's kind of just a, a brief intro into sort of the natural progression that I do see a lot of real estate investors. It's interesting from. you talked about the natural progression, too. Yeah. Do you think for most people, I think, like you said, you see a lot of people start in residential and find their way into multifamily, whether it's duplexes, fourplexes, or larger. Would you advise someone who was new to investing to just start in multifamily, or do you think most people need to start with residential and get their feet wet there before they move into bigger projects? I think everybody's different. Um, I personally started in multifamily just because it's what I knew. I actually, when I got started in the real estate brokerage business, I was referred to a group who owned about $30 million worth of properties that they wanted to go ahead and sell. Okay. And so I didn't know anything about it. It's funny because as I went through it and I was like, what are we talking about? Cash flow? I don't know. I didn't know anything about real estate. I mean, I was just like, I'm trying to make some extra money, you know, some more <laughs> yeah. money. And uh, I was actually trying to get out of the corporate world and I got into real estate and I got referred to these people. So then I started reading these books. I read, of course, everybody's talked about Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, yeah. Yeah. and it's all about building assets. And so as I started to get you know, more comfortable and more familiar with those concepts, I said, multifamily makes sense for me. I don't want to start you know, single family personally. I, I didn't want to. And so my first deal was an eightplex. And you know, I definitely, it was a big bite to kind of take Take and, and digest for the first, you know, few, you know, couple of years. To be honest with you, I learned a ton uh, from that. So for me, it worked that way because I was able to kind of leverage that experience into larger deals as well. Uh, so it just depends, but I think it's you. You do want to learn. I mean, you want to learn as much as possible, but then also you want to take action. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, there is a point where it's like you're not going to know everything. So just go ahead and move and expect to make the mistakes and course correct and surround yourself with people who can help you correct those mistakes as well. Definitely. Sure. So, you know, a question I've got revolves around, you know, finding the fourplexes, the fiveplexes, the eightplexes, you know, a lot of them you see in some of these older buildings, you know, we've, we've got these great old Victorians down in old Louisville that have been, you know, chopped up into, into apartments. How do you look at, you know, if something is maybe not, uh, doesn't have separate meters, you know, do you, do you just bake that into to your pricing as far as your rent goes or do you have a system I, i've seen some systems that are out there that you know they they claim that they can take places that aren't separately metered and they can kind of break out the water bills the electric bills um, but i haven't tried any myself because I've, I've got a few of those buildings mm -hmm. um, but just curious what what your take or what your experience has been well, i think you have to look at it as a value add opportunity because mm -hmm. most tenants expect to pay their own gas and electric so it's not an unusual thing to be able to say, you know, this situation isn't really working for us as a landlord, so we've got to strategize. So what what are those solutions? There certainly are, you know, sub-metering sort of services that are out there. Um, definitely for water is a big deal. You know, it's uh, it's called ratio utilities bill ratio utility billing services, and it's short uh, acronym is RUBS. And so you can do that for water where you go through and you do sort of sub meters on each of the units wherever okay. they're, yeah. you know, uh, accessing their water. And so then you can bill back, you know, for water or you can do flat fees. You know, some of the less sophisticated way to do it is to say, hey, you know, your, your rent is call it seven fifty a month. And then you're, we're going to bill back $25 a month for water and sewer. And then we're also going to do 25 or 50 for gas and electric if you don't have a sub meter. So there's a few different sort of sophisticated and unsophisticated 
sophisticated ways to do it. If you want to add permanent value to the asset and say, look, here's what we did and we're actually you know, raising our value and perhaps we're going to be doing a 1031 exchange into another deal, at that point you can invest in actually you know, installing additional meters into the property, which depending on the asset can be extremely expensive and involved, or it could be a fairly simple, simple process. I think for the most part, it is quite an investment to do that. So there are some other options out there. So I've had several investors who have asked about some of the larger deals, um, and they'd like to stay here local if at all possible. But I, sometimes I find it it's hard to find, you know, outside of a, a four or a five plex. I mean, if you really want to jump to 16, 32, 64, something like that, where are you finding deals? like that. Yeah. It's, where are all your secret deals? Yeah. Like where, where do you get your best stuff? Well, it's very competitive, extremely competitive. And it's because, like I said, we work with international, I mean, groups, like we're taking down deals from people all over the world in this market because people can find yield here where they can't in other sure. more premier type of markets, you know, and, and larger cities. And so that, you know, obviously most of those international investors are looking for very large deals at minimum 100 units, 150, 200 plus. Um, but, you know, some of the smaller deals, of course, you kind of trickle down where you look at like a lot of folks in New York and California and Florida and different coastal markets are saying, you know, we're getting pushed out of our market. So we need to find some opportunity for a return on investment. You know, then they look at, you know, the Indianapolis's of the world. And of course, Louisville is in that sort of boat as well. So it makes it very challenging from a competitive standpoint. Uh, but where are we finding the deals? It's it's a it's a relationship business. Sure. Um, a lot of these deals, you know, may or may not hit the market. Um, at times, you know, it's all about hey, who do we know who's going to help make this a, a seamless process for us into you know our next opportunity? And so because uh, they don't want people who are going to waste their time, you oh, know, yeah. and then also bother their tenants and and create a disruption of their cash flow. So. It's a long and slow game. It's not an easy answer to say what's the best way to find the deals, but it's a, you know, you've got to invest in those very, very long-term relationships. Yeah. I want to jump back to something we were talking about a minute ago, comparing multifamily uh, and single family. Jay actually jumped onto our live stream a second ago from home, I'm sure, uh, and asked, how do multifamily investment returns affect single family investment returns? I'm guessing he's saying in the market in general, like how do trends on multifamily returns have an impact on single family returns for investors? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, all, all markets are tied together, whether it's real estate or whether it's a different financial market, in my opinion, I think maybe that's the bigger answer to the question. But as far as how do they impact single family returns? I mean, for the most part, look, you know, unless you're talking about a, you know, two to four unit property, those are going to be valued perhaps on comparable sales price per square foot. Anything above that is going to be priced on the NOI, the risk of the property, the cap rate that's associated with the risk of that asset. So you're not seeing the same factors factoring into what you're going to charge for rent each month? Not necessarily. I mean, you definitely will use that as a rent comp to make sure that you're you know, using your appropriate you know, analysis for how you're operating the asset, which yeah. then does Im implicate you know, the value in the future um, you know, in terms of the cash flow that it generates. But Really, that's the biggest thing. And then also, I mean, neighborhoods are certainly, you know, depends on if, if values of homes are continuing to rise in a certain area, then the value of your multifamily assets can do the same because it's going to be seen as less risky, more, you know, more of an attractive location. So those factors do kind of indirectly impact the value. I don't know if that makes sense, but that would 
be how I would look at it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So have you worked with uh, residential customers at all, or has it strictly been uh, commercial investors? Yeah, so um, everybody that we work with is investors. Um, we do work with some commercial occupants um, mm -hmm. for office space and retail. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, we do investment sales, uh, whether it's multifamily or any of the other asset classes. Um, but I have worked with residential customers in the past. Um, for us to be very hyper-focused, it makes most sense for us to work with commercial investors at this point. Well, and, they, and I ask because I, I know a big chunk of our audience are agents who probably work a lot with mm -hmm. residential customers mm -hmm. who you know would like to get, you know, they've got a few high net worth residential customers who are looking to buy some investment properties. And they're just taking a look to see how how is the process different you know is you know taking somebody out and showing them 15 20 houses and you know helping them figure out what's what's going to be their family home versus taking an investor out um to figure out what what's going to be their their next investment funding their nest egg so yeah i think the biggest thing is learning about outcomes you know identifying well, what are the outcomes that this investor is seeking of course you know everybody wants to make the greatest return on investment they can possibly make but if that's the case, then everybody would be buying, you know, West End properties because the cap rates are much more significant than, you know, somewhere in St. Matthews or something like that, just as yeah. an example. And so obviously you've got to dig deeper in terms of what are those goals, what's the long-term vision, because it's not a quick game. It's definitely not a get-rich-quick type of a scheme. I mean, obviously the market's been really strong over the past few years. It's been continuing to rise in terms of values, but you've got to kind of advise. And the other thing, too, that's different is like, you're not really, it's not a transactional type of thing. You need to be adding value to your clients. And so you've got to gain that expertise, um, whether it's your own experience or investing in your education. You know, certainly it is doing the transactions and doing them well. But at the end of the day, it is about, all right, the transaction's done. Now, how can I also help this investor continue to add value to their portfolio? So if you're working with investors, that's what people want to see. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these investors are extremely sophisticated to be able to do their own deals. So you've got to be able to identify, well, what other blind spots can I help them? Yeah, how am I adding spots? here? Yeah, exactly. So speaking of adding value, one of the things that resource this show is all about is trying to take uh, agents in our market that are already pretty successful, but that want to kind of make that extra leap. Uh, what would you say to the agent, not necessarily a brand new agent, but maybe an agent who's done primarily residential sales up to this point, and maybe their business is pretty investor heavy at, at where they're at, and they're thinking about breaking into commercial real estate, or maybe like making the full leap to go into commercial out of residential. I know your story is not exactly like that. You were kind of headfirst into the commercial world, but what would your advice be to somebody that wants to maybe transition from residential sales to more commercial sales like what you're doing? Um, I think I, the first thing I would do is try to find a mentor um, because it's, um, you know, it, it can be kind of a small knit community and it, it's very relational. Okay. Whether it's on the broker side or on the investor side and owner side, it's very relational. So it's not like, hey, you know, most of the deals are just open to the public and they're kind of, every, you know, certainly many deals are marketed. But I think the biggest thing is to, to start with, you know, identifying who, who can be your mentor and sort of building those relationships. I do think it's kind of that slow and steady thing. It's you're, You probably won't just jump in face first you know day one and and find a ton of success with that but you kind of yeah. build over time and 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 show people that you're somebody you know who's sticking around and you're somebody who's to be respected yeah and that makes a lot of sense so do you feel that you know a lot of people in in your position who work primarily on the commercial side or on the multifamily side are are willing to be that mentor for somebody trying trying to get in there i mean looking at it is you know before I owned investment properties of my own, thinking about it as, as just a, a young new agent wanting to do that, worried that 
you know, I, I can't ask one of these guys in my own market who's basically their secrets? a competitor, yeah. you, you know, will you want to mentor me here? Because it, I looked at it as just a zero-sum game. If I buy a great investment, that's one less that you get to buy or mm-hmm. one less you get to sell to one of your clients. So, It's a great question. Um, you know, one thing that I've heard recently that really stuck with me is there's two ways to really add value to someone else and to really kind of find a mentor or somebody to help advise you and, 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 and build a path for you. And it's either to seek to serve or pay to play, right? You know, people offer coaching services and things like that. I do that as well um, for real estate investors as well as people who are looking to break into the space. So that's that's one way. Uh, but also seeking to serve. You know, what can you do to help this person? You know, in a different way. If they're going to be giving you some resources or information or sort of wisdom and share wisdom with you, you know, what can you do to help them? You know, what are they deficient in right now? You know, are they you know, short, short on time, what can you do to kind of help them leverage, you know, their time? Uh, so sort of adding value, I think is key, but it is also showing that, you know what, you're somebody who's not just picking the brain, you know, you get this question all the time. It's like, Hey, can I pick your brain? It's like, yes, of course, because I'm a generous person, you know, I'm, I'm happy to share. I do podcasts all the time. I want to share information, but show me that you're adding value, that you're actually taking action yourself you know, that also goes a long way. And, it, and, and playing the long game, I think, is really important. Yeah. Great. So when you when you think about maybe like scale down just a little bit from what you're doing right now, not huge international investors, but uh, what do you think, we talk about the correlation in markets between, um, you know, apart, let's say like apartment investors and single family home investors. Uh, in a lot of cases, depending on the price range, I feel like these investors might be competing for the same tenants. You know, like there's some, if you're in the right price point, the same tenants that might consider a two bed, one bath apartment might be looking at some of the houses that are for sale in a similar price range. What do you think that apartment investors and single family investors need to be doing to be competitive when they're going after the same pool of potential tenants? It's a tough question um, because I also want to just backtrack a little bit, and I, I I do think that it is a limiting belief to think that it's a zero sum game, some game in right. some ways. Because I think the the larger the pie continues to grow, the more there is for everyone to to share and to prosper. So that's one thing, just kind of conceptually, that I think is a is a mindset shift that I think is really important. Um, because you know, a lot of people ask about like, wow, we have so many new de- newly developed apartment complexes in Louisville, and they say. How are we filling these things up? Yeah, and the the fact of the matter is, we are filling them up rapidly, and you know we've had tens of thousands of units over the past few years developed, and we're still at a you know seven percent vacancy rate, which is the overall you know average for yeah. our market. And so, um, you know, I think just do the best that you can to attract the tenants. You know, what 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 are the tenant tastes? You know, one of the things with larger apartment complexes is you know tenants like the amenities that are included, and so you know obviously you can't replicate that in a smaller deal. So what can you do to sort of bring that deficiency up in a different way? You know, what other sort of, you know, can you offer them Wi-Fi? Can you offer them, you know, just little like additional improvements to their units that may be attractive? So just thinking in tune with like, what does the end tenant need and what do they want? Um, And just kind of doing your best to service that. And then also, I think customer service is something that is highly lacking in apartment management as well as any investor management. It's like we all talk about like building our portfolios and doing all these things. But what can you do to go above and beyond and show your tenants that you care and that you want to have them around for the long term, I think is a great way to set yourself apart. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it sounds like from what you're saying, you're not super worried about the like 
competing with other types of investors for tenants. It sounds like there's enough for everybody. And it's like, what do you do to just set yourself apart? That's the big I thing. I think you definitely need to be aware that obviously tenants have many different options, but you know, just kind of being old school, old fashioned and saying, look, we're going to offer great customer service. We're going to deliver the product. We're going to repair things when they're, when they need to be repaired. We're going to be proactive. Um, those kind of things really is what kind of helps you succeed in a competitive environment, but I wouldn't be worried about it otherwise. Yeah. So when it comes to property management and, and one-to-one like communications with clients, what do you think is the one thing that gets overlooked the most when people are dealing with their clients that they could really with improve? tenants or with tenants? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think being proactive, to be honest with you, because most things are reactive. It's like my toilet's leaking or, you know, my lights don't work or my heat's out or, and it's like people And then you're racing the clock to fix it. Yeah. So how can you build in being proactive within your asset management or property management? It's like, all right, you know, every week we're doing X, Y, and Z, you know, we're walking these units now and we're just, we're not necessarily looking for problems, but we're just getting ahead of the issues before they become issues. So that's just one of my opinions. I think one of the things that's most irritating about real estate in general to me is how reactive it is rather than proactive. So um, I think if you can sort of think about that concept, I think that would be helpful. What advice do you have for the, you know, maybe somebody who's an empty nester or recently retired who wants to, you know, pump some of their money into maybe an eight, 10, 12 plex. And they say, well, you know what? I got, I got some extra time. I'm kind of handy. I know a little bit about what I'm doing, but this is my first property. I think I'm gonna try managing it myself and not hiring a manager. What, what are your thoughts on that? It's a challenging business. It's one of the hardest businesses in the world, um, in my opinion. Yeah. It's just very hard. And, and I'm saying that to be like, I want people to go in with their eyes wide open. Yeah, sure. They need yeah. to know all about how challenging it is. And what you read in a book is not exactly how it works out in the real world. <laughs> And so that's that goes back to getting a mentor, like you said. Yeah. And it's just facing the brutal facts. Like, I don't say that to discourage anyone to do it. It's just, you know, know how challenging it is, but also know that you need to have other people to lean on. You can't just be that guy. It's like, yeah, I'll call my plumber whenever this happens. It's like, what about the emergency? Who's going to call you at 3 a.m.? Like, you got to be ready for all the different things that could happen. Um, When I started investing, I managed myself. And I'll be honest with you, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I I did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I I outsourced my management to, uh, you know, a third party. And it made sense for my, you know, my sort of I guess, approach to business because I have other things going on. It wasn't my mainstream of income, but it obviously reduces your profit. I mean, mm-hmm. it, re, you know, it cuts into your profit. So it depends on the size of the asset, but you've got a management fee, you've got leasing fees, those kind of things. So you have to have a long-term vision on that as well. But um, I think in general, like people can do it if they have enough time on their hands and they have, they're, they're willing to, you know, it's going to be a challenge at least for the first year or two, in my opinion, um, once they can develop their systems, their processes and their team at that point, then I think they will be highly successful, but just kind of having that perspective is important. Well, sure. And just learning the laws of what you can do, exactly. what you can't do. When can you keep a deposit? When, when do you have to give it back? Right. Absolutely. Things, so. Well, so- on the flip side of that question, this is maybe the opposite question. What if you have an investor who is ready to outsource like literally everything? They've got the money to invest and they're like, I just want to put my money in and watch it come back out. I don't want to touch any of this. What would you suggest to that person that they really should be hands-on with so that they make sure they're not missing a key learning opportunity? 
Well, I think there's there's a lot of different options for investors who want to be involved in the game and they don't want to be involved in the day to day. Like okay. they don't want to deal with the headaches, right? Sure. So you can either own the asset directly and outsource your you know property management, you know, as you would, and then you become an asset manager. Yeah. So you've got to be very diligent in how you're managing the asset. You're managing the manager. You're strategically planning. You're implementing your vision. And you're course correcting on a continual basis there. But also, you can be a private passive investor. I mean, you can invest in large syndications and be a part of a large deal, you know, and put a portion of capital into that deal and just receive a cash flow paycheck every month. Yeah. And also a portion of the upside as well. So that's a way to leverage your, your resources in a bigger way that really you don't have to be a passive, you don't have to be a, an asset manager in that, in that standpoint. I mean, gotcha. you're really just, you're, you know, you've got a sponsor, the, the syndicator, the general partner is really managing that deal. They're the asset manager. You don't really have any say in the deal. So you've got to make sure you're investing in the appropriate sponsor, um, the, the appropriate syndicator. But as you do that, I mean, you kind of can step away and, and your, your capital, your money can go to work for you and you don't have to spend a lot of time doing that. Yeah. Okay. Well, and another thing that, that I wonder about too, with a business like this, uh, is a lot of things we talk about on resource or we talk about how things are infinitely scalable, right? Like once you figure out how to make it the one thing work, you just scale up until you have to change plans. What would, is there like a limit that you would tell people like to not get too crazy and go over when they're investing or like if they've got a, if they've got something really good by the tail, should they just run with it? Or do you think like, Hey, once you've got this many projects going at once, you really need to cut it here. I don't know. I think it's a tough question because I do believe in the concept of infinite scale. Okay. Um, if if it makes sense, I mean, but your time and attention, of course, is is non renewable. Okay, your time is limited. Um, so you've got to feel like, all right, well, what? How are we leveraging, you know, various resources, various people, and various, you know, capital, really? So I think if you're doing large syndications and things like that, of course, you can really exponentially grow there. But if you're asset manager or if you're managing your own assets, I mean, that that question has got to be unique for the particular party. Yeah, I don't know that. What's your answer. patience? Like yeah. patience is not a renewable resource, you know. I mean, I know I've known people that have managed 500 units themselves, and you know, they have a small team. Team and it, it gets overwhelming. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a lot day in day out. I mean, I know I know companies that manage five thousand units that are you know they're you know they're at their max. You know, so just it just depends. And yeah, about knowing yourself, I guess. More personnel and in technology is another big thing too. So yeah, I think from a, a residential side, we can kind of see that the market is, you know, it's it's starting to level off a little bit. And I don't think it's really taking a dip at this point. Um, and then coming into twenty twenty, obviously an election year, things tend to be a little more volatile. Are you seeing the same thing on the commercial side that we're seeing on the residential side? It depends on the asset class for sure. Uh, multifamily has still been extremely strong. I think a lot of people look at a very volatile economy in different ways and say, well, what's going on with the financial system? What's going on with the yield curve inversion that just occurred? You know, what's going on with our you know trade wars and all these kind of things like internationally? And they're saying, well. I don't know about cash. I don't know about the dollar, you know, the value of that. But then they say, well, what, what about the trends of occupancy, the trends of housing? And if you look at it, you know, the, you know, occupancy of apartments has continued to rise, you know, throughout this time. And a lot of, you know, millennials or baby boomers are saying, I don't want to either own a home or, or what have you. I'd rather rent because I think it's, you know, less, you know, risky in some ways. And so, um, you know, obviously there's a lot more factors that come into play with that, but investors are looking at these trends and saying, look, I think that's a safe place to be 
if we do have a downturn. So multifamily has remained very strong. And obviously people, you know, are, are being cautious in terms of what that all looks like, but interest rates continue to, to, you know, be reduced um, on a, on an ongoing basis over the past 12 months has also increased the spread of return that people can return and the leverage uh, that they're able to achieve through that uh, investment. So that's continued to raise the value of multifamily. Uh, but in terms of like retail and office, it totally depends on like the location of that asset, you know, the tenant of that, of that, of that asset, you know, because uh, like Amazon and other online e-commerce businesses are certainly disrupting uh, retail. So people see that as a higher risk asset, which Interesting, then yeah. increases the, the cap rates and all that kind of stuff, which decreases the value. So that's, those are some of the factors that are at play. So speaking of that, I mean, if you could just expand just a little bit on, you know, what you're seeing in terms of trends of retail space versus like warehouse space, for instance. I mean, I see warehouses going up all over the place because e-commerce is massive right now. Um, Are you you struggling getting retail spaces rented? Um, And then do do you work on the warehouse side as well? So I don't do a lot of industrial myself, um, but we are in a top 10 market in the country when it comes to industrial, just because of our geographic location. Hmm. You know, most of our job growth in Louisville is to logistics and manufacturing, and we've invested a lot there. Um, last year, there was like 9 million spec speculative um, industrial space developed. And what that means is there was no tenants lined up before the development, which is a risky process yeah. for, for a developer, but they've been absorbed and they've been leased, you know, tremendously. And there's like a 4% vacancy rate. So, you know, investors, uh, you know, real estate investment trusts, REITs, and all these national and multinational investors are saying, wow, we want to be an industrial in this market because logistics and e-commerce is growing tremendously and it's in such high demand for occupancy. So those cap rates are continuing to be compressed. You know, industrial and multifamily are really the two strongest asset classes in in uh, commercial real estate right now in this market. Um, but then retail, you know, is certainly continuing. It's challenged at some sure. point. Uh, but there's some strip centers that are like you know irreplaceable locations. You know, phenomenal tenants that have very long term leases that are all triple net. You know, where there's no landlord responsibility um, other than you know really just kind of uh, mailbox money and collecting the uh, the revenue and the cash flow from that deal. And so those are those are highly still still highly valued. It just depends. It has an asset by asset uh, basis. Uh, but I think it is really interesting what's happening because. I was in Minneapolis for a conference a couple of weeks ago and you know their their industrial market is is strong but their cap rates are like 8% versus here they're 5%. Sure. And so it's very interesting because we're a different market when it comes to you know that type of uh, you know that type of asset because of where we're geographically. We can service 70% of the United States within a day's drive, you know, of this location so trucks can go to and fro, you know, from all of the uh, industrial assets. So I think it's really interesting. That's really cool. This is interesting for me to hear too as someone who has no commercial real estate knowledge whatsoever because there's so many factors that you really have to be tuned into from you know what's happening internationally what's happening in the world of business and things that it's good to know about in residential real estate but then maybe you think you know this is so high level it's not going to affect how much my st matthew's you know three bed two bath sells for but when you're selling commercial this is the day in day out stuff you've got to be tuned into yeah and i think ultimately it does come down to sort of impact everything whether it's residential or otherwise but i think perhaps it's just more on kind of top of mind um, yeah because that's the discussion everybody's it's all about risk you know real estate or commercial real estate is all about you know what's the risk of the asset what's the potential upside of taking that risk 
And so that's how they're all valued. And so it definitely is a very complicated global economy now. And so there's a lot of factors at play. But even something that happens in Hong Kong can impact Louisville, Kentucky, I think is pretty fascinating. It really is. Can you talk a little bit about like a, a due diligence, so like an inspection on a residential property that you're going to live in versus, you know, how your clients are running inspections on a, a potential either multifamily or commercial space or sure. something like that. Yeah. So obviously you guys know this um, better than anybody, but, you know, to inspect a, a residential property, you know, you're going to get what, seven to 14 days on average or something like that to do somewhere your, in there. Yeah. Do your inspections and then have a negotiation, that kind of stuff. If you need anything to be repaired or improved. And, you know, it depends. I mean, for the most part, these deals are as is. And, um, you know, you've got to kind of have your, you know, your clear eyes open, you know, going into the deal and and understanding that there's going to be certain challenges, you know, that you're going to have to overcome. Uh, And when you go in and do your due diligence, typically on on multifamily properties right now, it's a typically a 30 day due diligence period. Okay. And then typically 30 days to close after that. And so you've obviously, depending on the circumstances, you've got financing and all that good stuff as well. That would be your contingencies during your due diligence period, as well as title and all that good stuff, you know, lease audits, financial audits. So your your inspection period not only includes your financial, but it also includes your physical. So you've got to be able to do that. You've also got to go through your legal process. You know, what's going on with the zoning here? You know, do we have environmental issues? So you've got to have a lot of different experts kind of involved with you. You also need to have your attorney sort of doing a lease audit on, you know, what type, what type of leases do we have here? What kind of challenges does that present? Because you're really acquiring you know, a structure that is backed by leases, you know, at the end of the day. So that's a big piece of the process. But as far as physical inspections go, you know, it depends. I mean, on some of the smaller deals, you will still see sort of, you know, home inspectors at times. And, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, we recommend a, a, a you know, a professional contractor for whatever services is structural engineer, HVAC yeah. or something. Um, sure. and, and, and honestly, like you, you also see where people will bring in general contractors um, or specific contractors for plumbing, electric, uh, HVAC, whatever, whatever that may be. So uh, you just have, kind of have to determine what makes most, most sense for you. Are you seeing a an influx of investors uh, coming in looking for specifically Airbnb or short-term rental properties? We're seeing that some. Um, on some of the larger deals, you've got to be commercially zoned uh, to be able to do that. So multifamily zoning will not be approved. Um, so I'm sure you guys know that. Um, so that's one of the challenges there. But certainly on sort of your smaller deals, you know, I think it's only up to duplexes now that you can really get approved. Um, you guys might know better than me on that now. Um, but unless it's a commercially zoned asset where you can have, you know, you can pepper in some some Airbnb units and it's a it's a value add sort of a strategy. Sure. So I think you're always looking to, you know, increase revenue or decrease expenses. And at the end of the day, increase your net operating income. And if that comes into play, of course, you know, I will say it hasn't been sort of a widely thought um, sort of strategy on some of the larger deals just because of the limitations on zoning and and approval. Because I I get the question a fair amount out there Mm -hmm. with with some of my clients, but I I didn't know if you were seeing that people coming specifically to you looking for that strategy, maybe coming in from, from out of town. Not too much, but some on, on some of the like mixed use deals, like if you've got a retail or office, you know, on the first floor and then you've got apartments upstairs, mm-hmm. that's definitely an employed strategy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tyler, I really appreciate you spending the time just to come and talk to us. We're almost there on time, but I've got one more question. I feel like most of what we talked, almost all we've talked about has been, you know, real investing heavy, real, you know, dug in. I want to zoom out a little bit and talk just a little bit about you for this last question. All right. 
you and your in your business, you're a broker owner. You are you know really focused on professional development. You do the podcast. You do all these different things in the Chesser companies. Coaching, yeah, companies with an S. Uh, one thing we've talked about on resource a lot is different business verticals for people that are in leadership positions. And a lot of our listeners are team leaders or even brokers. What would you say is one piece of advice you'd give to fellow brokers, you know, president, founder types, team leaders about, you know, having your time allotted in so many different directions? What's your like number one time management tip or your thing that like keeps you sane when you have all these moving parts? Well, it's for, uh, I guess there's a few things there. So if it's time management, I think the biggest thing is like, you know, people always say, well, man, I don't have any time for anything. And sure. if you look at it, look, every single week you have 168 hours, right? And obviously a lot of that's spent sleeping and different things that you've got to do. You got to spend time with your family. And obviously you've got to prioritize, well, what's what's high lifetime value? What is, you know, what's high dollar value time spent? Interesting. Okay. What's, what's low dollar value time? And then what's like, you know, time that's really not worthwhile for anything. You know, you're watching TV, you're scrolling, perhaps you're scrolling social media like mindlessly or whatever it is. And it's like, wait a minute, let's take an inventory of these things. So in my opinion, that's the first thing to do is kind of take an inventory of where you are. Say, look, how much percentage am I spending in each of these different categories? And then what's my goal to kind of transition into, you know, how can I how can I better spend my time in this sort of kind of pyramid? It's as, interesting to hear you yeah. talk about that. It sounds like an investment, the way you're talking about it. It's like you're analyzing uh, like a piece of a portfolio. Absolutely. It's like, is this time valuable or not? It's interesting how those two things bleed over. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I guess my overall kind of answer, and I hope that this answers your question. Like I, I mentioned earlier, I'm obsessed with professional development, personal development, just becoming something more because for me, that's been the key to be successful in anything. And as I let my curiosity continue to drive me, I find out more opportunities for my company or, you know, multiple companies that I'm involved with or own. And so each and each and every time I learn something more, I'm able to kind of bring some innovation from one thought process into the real estate business and say, you know what, this, you know, I may have learned this from Steve Jobs or whoever, but this can be applied here. It says practical applications. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the, that's the thing with innovation is like, you don't have to just learn, you know, just real estate, you know, stuff to be able to, you know, kind of grow your business and to become more vertically integrated, as you said. And yeah. So we try to focus on like real estate as that vehicle towards, you know, creating a great life because that's what it is. You know, I think a lot of people get really caught up in, Hey, how can I be successful in real estate? And that's great. But you also have to remember the outcome is to create, you know, in my opinion, like my mission statement for my company is to elevate to a life without limits. And that's why my podcast is called Elevate is because millions of people tolerate their life. Millions of people sure. just plug it in. They're like, you know, they do the nine to five thing and not 501. You better believe they're out the door. And Friday comes and they're, they're, they're thankful, but then they're also dreading Monday. And I'm like, man, there's a better life out there. So if you can invest in real estate, if you can do it the right way, you can also become more as a person, you know, develop other people, give back to other people. I think at that point, then you can really kind of bring out your greatest talents and your greatest capacities and have fun and, and live a great life. Man, I love it. That's awesome. great. Well, if you're listening to this, if you're watching live and you're listening right now, feel free to send a message or drop your questions here for Tyler. We'll make sure we get those answered. Uh, if you're listening to this later on on the podcast, uh, we're going to have links in the description to the Elevate podcast where you can hear similar content, especially if you're someone like Tyler who's really committed to prof professional and personal development. Uh, make sure to subscribe. We'll be back next week at the same time on Wednesday. Luke, any closing thoughts? Anything? No, obviously, um, I, I think I'll be here next week as well, but um, yeah. I'm not Jay Pitts. I'm not as good looking, not as tall. We're going to change the uh, intro music to, to say Luke Andrews instead of Jay please, Pitts during please, the please intro do. for next week. 
But yep, that's all we got for today. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to Resource Real Talk about Louisville real estate. We'll see you all next time. Thanks, guys. See you.